Well, that's wonderful. Well, we are continuing our look at the growing global, uh, at the book of Psalms with the growing global rebellion. And if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 2. And this is one of those messianic psalms. If you remember back at the beginning of the series, we talked about how you can kind of categorize the different psalms based on their content. And this is one that uh, is uh, very messianic, meaning it points to the ultimate reign of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever uh, made a plan that did not really turn out like you intended? I mean, of course we have in small ways and big ways, but maybe you spent weeks you know, organizing and strategizing and planning something and you, you roll it out and it flops. It just fails. There are many famous examples of noteworthy failures and maybe you remember uh, some of these. For example, back in the 70s, you remember the, the beta videos, Sony Betamax? Some of you Maybe too young to remember this, but Sony launched this cassette, and it was actually the first one to hit the market, but they just didn't plan it very well, and it lost the battle for the market share to JVC's VHS, which became kind of the standard in the in industry, and beta became kind of the laughing stock. I can remember as a kid, back when they had blockbuster video stores, and you'd go and you'd rent a video, and... Uh, and for just a brief time, there was, you know, you had to go to the beta section or the VHS section, but before long it was all uh, VHS. And then who can forget this one? Back in the uh, 1980s, actually it was 1985, which was the year I graduated from high school. So some of you are thinking, man, he's young. And then some of you are thinking, man, he's old. Uh, so that's good. I'm right in that age where I can, I'm an equal opportunity appeal, you know, I can be old or young. But I remember this debacle. They tested this new Coke recipe on 200,000 people and found that the vast majority preferred it over the traditional. So what could possibly go wrong, right? Let's unveil it. Well, product loyalty and, you know, the, 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 the desire for the old-fashioned, you know, style of Coke and all that just made it flop. They ended up losing $4 million in development and over 30 million in backstocked product that they couldn't sell. It's one of the most famous business failures uh, in history. And then as a Mac guy, I found this interesting. Back in 1983, uh, Macintosh Apple released the Lisa a computer. It was the first desktop to hit the market with a mouse. And uh, the price tag was $10,000. Uh, by the way, today you can find one of these used uh, for $24,000, so they're quite the uh, antique, I guess, uh, collectible. Uh, but it had a whopping one, one megabyte of RAM. And, uh, but, you know, it just turns out that consumers weren't as interested as Apple uh, thought they would be. Uh, they overpromised. They spent tons on advertising. In fact, I'm going to play a, a one-minute clip here of a commercial from 1983. Starring none other than Kevin Costner, way back before he was famous in 1983. The way some business people spend their time has very little to do with a clock.
business as usual isn't anymore. That's why we make the most advanced personal computers in the world. And why soon, there'll be just two kinds of people. Those who use computers. Yeah, I'll be home for breakfast. And those who use apples. Okay. So, I guess the point of the commercial is if you buy an Apple Lisa, then you'll have a loyal dog as a pet. And you'll get up bright and early and go to the office uh, to walking your dog before breakfast. Uh, I don't know what I really don't know what they were trying to do with that commercial, but I did think it was strange that Kevin Costner used his left hand to hold the mouse, even though the mouse was on the right side <laughs> of the computer. I think this was before mouses or mice or whatever were very commonplace, and I guess even they probably should have coached him a little bit on here's what we're intending to do with these things called a mouse. But anyway, he just kind of casually, I don't know, the whole thing is kind of weird, but maybe it's no wonder that the product flopped with a commercial. Uh, like that. But anyway, uh, and lastly, who can forget uh, the Edsel? The Edsel, uh, back in 1957. So, uh, Gary, did you have one of these? <laughs> you had two of them. Good. Um, again, they did extensive research uh, to make sure the car had everything that it, the people wanted and so forth, but uh, it just flopped. It didn't catch on. And by the time it did, people were buying smaller cars and and uh, you know, the, these examples are just examples that, that show that Robert Burns was right. Do you remember the name Robert Burns? He was a Scottish poet. And uh, in fact, he's kind of known as the national poet of Scotland. He's like their Shakespeare, if you will. And his uh, influence in the United States uh, it was huge. And, and uh, one example would be his influence on John Steinbeck, who chose as the title of his 1937 novel, Of Mice and Men. That was the title. And that comes from a Robert uh, Burns a poem called To a Mouse. And uh, I think this principle that he put forth probably turned out to be true when he said, The best laid schemes, O mice and men, gang after glay. Which, of course, being translated, The best laid plans of mice and men can still go wrong. And to paraphrase that quote, in Psalm chapter 2, King David assures us in Psalm 2 that the best laid plans of devils and demons will absolutely not succeed. See, Satan has a plan. He's had a plan since he was kicked out of heaven. And that plan is to take over the world. And he is hard at work. He's very intelligent as an angelic being. Uh, he has a legion of demons, fallen angels, that are working and co-conspiring with him. And they're doing everything they can to roll out this plan. But when all is said and done, as we shall see this morning in the book of Psalms, that plan's just going to be another flop, like the Edsel or New Coke or some uh, new Apple uh, computer. But this is an exciting time to be alive. You know, if, if you know the Lord, anyway... It's an exciting time to be alive. By the way, if you don't know the Lord, if you never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone so that you have a relationship with God our Creator through Christ, that you're reborn by your faith in Him, then this can be a terrifying time. Uh, but for those of us who know the Lord, it's an exciting time. You know, all things, all kinds of things happening. Almost every day something major, global, is hitting 
uh, the news. We have major unrest uh, throughout the world due to this manufactured pandemic. We have the increasing threat of terror attacks on U.S. soil, which just went up. I just read an article yesterday, Saturday, that talked about how we've had 30,000, some estimates say now 50,000 Afghani refugees that have been carted over here. No passport, no identity, no names, no health records, no nothing. Just getting off the plane and assimilating into our culture. And it's raised great concerns about uh, renewed terror threats. We have continued economic concerns both at home and abroad. We have crazy, crazy weather patterns and unprecedented fires generated by government geoengineering programs like solar radiation management, stratospheric aerosol injection, or chemical ice nucleation. And if those things don't mean anything to you, I encourage you to watch part seven in our Spirit of the Antichrist series that we did here last fall. Uh, but we have increased attacks on personal liberty and freedom. There's talk of more lockdowns. And we're more divided as a nation than at any other time in our history, creating the potential for serious civil unrest. So more than ever before, we need to view life through a biblical perspective, lest we get caught off guard. And the Bible repeatedly reminds us that there is a cosmic battle going on in the unseen unseen realm. It's a battle between God, the eternal creator of the universe, and Satan. For example, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You'll notice I called this look at Psalm 2 the growing global rebellion, and that's because the Bible also is quite clear that evil men and impostors are growing worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. You know, Satan rebelled against God in the beginning, and that rebellion is growing stronger. It's gathering steam. It's gathering co-conspirators. I'm going to talk about that conspiracy in just a moment, but it's a conspiracy that involves Satan at the helm, his demonic angels that are working at his behest, and human counterparts, human co-conspirators. It's going to get worse and worse until God in his time and in his sovereignty intervenes directly in the affairs of mankind. So this morning I want to take us back a thousand years before Christ to the time of King David. In Psalm 2, David, the author, gives us one of many glimpses we find throughout God's Word into this cosmic battle between Satan and God. And he expounds upon the role of Satan's earthly agents, the Luciferian elite, who are hard at work trying to usher in a one-world system so that Satan, can, through the Antichrist, can be in charge and rule the world. Uh, so before we take a look at this growing global rebellion, let me give you a little bit of background and, and context. As I said, this is a messianic psalm, uh, and it's also a psalm of David. We know this because in uh, Acts chapter 13, Paul quotes from Psalm 2, and calls it the second psalm, and then later or earlier in Acts, Peter and John are talking, and they quote the same psalm, and they attribute it to David. So it's the second psalm, which it is, and it's also a psalm of David, even though the psalm itself does not have a superscription that attributes it to David. By comparing Scripture with Scripture and believing the whole counsel of God, we know this was, in fact, a psalm of David. And so as a messianic psalm, it is pointing toward the ultimate 
Messiah. It's written in four stanzas. You know, psalms were hymns, as we talked about in our introduction a few weeks ago. And they are structured, not with chapters and verses the way we've organized them in our English translations, but poetically in Hebrew, into stanzas. So as an illustration, if you can picture a hymn book, you remember the old hymn books that we used to use before technology? We put all the words on the screen. Well, those hymn books would typically have verses, you know, one, two, three, four, five. Now, if you grew up Baptist like I did, you didn't know there was a third verse because you always sang the first, second, and last, you know. But there were actually four verses. And, uh, and, and those verses would be similar to what we call stanzas in Hebrew uh, poetry. So this psalm has four stanzas. And what I'm going to do this morning, very simply, is summarize the main point of each of these four stanzas. Now, if you were here for July 4th, we were also looking at Psalm 2, but we only looked at the first couple of stanzas and we came at it from a slightly different approach. But I want to outline the entire second chapter of Psalm, the second Psalm for you this morning. So the theme of this chapter is this, very simple. Submit to the authority of the Son, whom God has ordained to rule over us. Submit to the authority of the Son, whom God has ordained to rule over us. So the first stanza reveals the Luciferian plot. This is the first three verses of Psalm 2. The well-documented global rebellion all started with Lucifer and his plot to take over God's created order. So David writes, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Notice the motivation, rage, rage. That's the only time this Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament. What does David mean when he says the nations raged? Well, it's the word ragash in Hebrew. It means to be aroused or disturbed or restless, to roar, to thunder, one lexicon says it's to be in tumult, to make a commotion. So if you can imagine, say, a sea with just waves like what they're probably experiencing up off the East Coast today with Hurricane Henry. And uh, having grown up in Southeast Texas, I can relate to hurricanes and tropical storms. And if you're out on the ocean during that time, or if you're even standing on the shore, you can see just the tumultuous raves just crashing every which way, beating up against buildings and ships and so forth. That's the word picture for this word ragash. The, the, the nations are absolutely in an uproar because of God. See, Satan hates God. And he and his demons and his earthly minions are in an uproar. They're panicking. They want to defeat God but they know that he's got the upper hand, first of all, even though they don't believe it. They still are self-deceived and think they can win this battle. They know. They've seen what happened in Genesis 3. They saw what God said in Genesis 3.15, warning that ultimately Satan would be destroyed. Um, and so by the time David is writing, he's seen <clears throat> time and again God, the Creator, intervene in the affairs of mankind with you know, the Red Sea and, of course, before that, the flood. And so he knows that he's got a formidable a foe, uh, and therefore he's raging. He's almost out of control, trying to do everything he can to take over this world. Back to the first stanza, verse 2 goes on, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. 
So notice the earthly element of this Luciferian conspiracy. Kings, earthly governmental leaders. And they are conspiring together. And what are they saying? They're saying, let us break their bonds. There is capitalized because it's a reference to God and his anointed. God the Father and ultimately God the Son. And in essence, the Godhead, the Trinity. But they're conspiring and saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. See, Satan does not like to be controlled. You know, Satan has control issues. Um, he hates God's sovereignty. And he especially hates God's chosen one who will rule the world as we know it on earth someday. And because that's what Satan has targeted for himself. Take it, Satan targeted the throne in heaven. God said, forget it, cast him to the earth. And Satan said, if I can't have heaven, I'll take the earth. And because God has ordained that the eternal Son of God, who came in the flesh, put on human flesh, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, died for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And the reason I always say defeating death, hell, and the grave is that we need to understand the biblical principle and teaching on death. I don't have time to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but remember, death, the Bible tells us, is the last enemy to be defeated. And Satan is the author of death. Jesus said in John 8, he's a murderer from the beginning. He loves death. And so when Christ died and rose again, he defeated death so that now for believers, those who are part of the family of God, death is just the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. It's just a rite of passage. It's like a door. Nothing to be afraid of whatsoever. In fact, Psalm 116, 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Nothing to be feared whatsoever, right? Because our physical death is just simply a passageway into the presence of our Savior and, and our loved ones that have gone before us that know the Lord. Now, for an unbeliever, death is terrifying. It's the ultimate thing not to fear, but not for believers. So this Jesus, who defeated death, hell, and the grave then rose to ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting, waiting for God to say, come back and take control of this earth, is the arch enemy of Satan. Satan can't stand him because he's the one that's going to do everything that Satan wants to do. Satan wants to take the throne. And by the way, he will for a short period of time when he indwells the Antichrist, and the Antichrist midway through the tribulation sets himself up on the throne as God. Uh, but it all started when Satan was cast out of heaven. Isaiah talks about this. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Uh, having set his sights on God's in heaven and being banished, he then set his sights on God's created earth. And what does he do? The first thing he does, according to Genesis, is he goes up to the a woman. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? In other words, he questioned God, did God really say that? And are you, know, are you sure you can trust God? I'm the guy you can really trust. And to this day, Satan's human Luciferian co-conspirators believe that the story of Genesis is real. They just believe that Lucifer is the hero and God is the antagonist. And they worship Satan. They worship Lucifer. They dedicate their books to Lucifer. They take his name as the namesake of their movement. They pray to him. They sacrifice to him. He's their God. But God, in response, as I mentioned a moment ago, told him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, this is God talking to Satan, 
and her seed. Notice seed is capitalized there. It's a reference to the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who's going to come and over, you know, rule the world in perfect peace and righteousness and judgment. So right there, the battle begins. Satan knew who his enemy was, knew who, who he's trying to replace, and God has told him he's, he's going uh, you know, to crush you. He's going to crush your head, basically, is what he's saying. And so for the last 6,000 years, this battle has been raging, and the nations and the kings have been rage, enraged seeking to dethrone the rightful heir to the throne, the king of kings. As I mentioned, Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar and the father of it. Remember in Job, when Job and Satan had the conversation, and the Lord said to Satan, From where did you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on. In other words, the earth is Satan's playground. This, the Bible tells us the whole world, this present world, lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is Satan's domain right now. And God in His sovereignty is giving him some rope ultimately to hang himself with. We don't like it. We don't think it's fair. It's not fair. We live in an unjust world that's broken because of sin. But it won't always be that way. And that's what the message of Psalm 2 tells us. And we trust God in the midst of it. And so, But for right now, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this age. Uh, this is his domain. And that's the reason that when Christ came at the first advent, born in Bethlehem, Satan immediately set out to destroy God's plan. Because God had come to Satan's backyard. And Satan says, I've got you right where I want you now. And so right off the chute, he starts trying to, first of all, kill all the babies two years old and under, hoping to kill the Messiah. Uh, at the... Uh, temptation of Jesus. He tried to get Jesus to bow down and worship Him. Uh, throughout Christ's earthly ministry, multiple encounters. And then, of course, ultimately, He indwelt Judas. Satan himself did, the prince of demons, and dwelt Judas and got Jesus to be betrayed and, and crucified. And Satan thought he'd won the battle, but, of course, we know he hadn't. So, we, again, as I mentioned earlier, we need to remember that our, our battle is an unseen one that's raging uh, in uh, the heavenlies in the spiritual unseen realm and uh, Satan will ultimately succeed temporarily at taking over the world as we read in many passages in the Bible but particularly the book of Re Revelation tells us that during the future tribulation the Antichrist who also will be indwelt by Satan will have global authority it will be granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome him and authority was given him over every tribe tongue and nation it will be a one world system with Satan at the helm through the human antichrist and we read on all who dwell on the earth will worship him and so uh you know every time i preach about the the luciferian conspiracy inevitably somebody complains that i shouldn't be giving the devil so much due well i think that kind of thinking is naive first of all and it's definitely unbiblical and our my task is to preach the whole counsel of god and the Bible repeatedly reminds us to be sober and be vigilant. Why? Because our adversary, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We're told to resist uh, the devil. And so this Luciferian conspiracy that we talked about during our Spirit of the Antichrist uh, series last fall, and if you haven't seen that, you can check that out at notbyworks.org, but 
it's a real thing. It's as old as time itself, and it is, uh, involves human uh, agents that are seeking uh, to you know, overcome the world. Now, you know, I'm going to take just a moment here and give you some evidence of that so you don't think I'm making this up. You should have all the evidence you need just from the bi- biblical data that I've just outlined, looking at the conspiracy. But if you pay attention and read and study and look beyond just the me- mainstream media and things like that, you'll find throughout history, history going back several hundred years, many people alluding to this Luciferian agenda. And I've showed some of these quotes uh, in our Spirit of the Antichrist uh, series. But uh, Charles de Gaulle, uh, for example, who was the, the, the uh, leader of the French forces during World War II, said, nations must unite in a world government or perish. James Paul Werberg, who was a German-born American banker and an advisor to FDR, said, We shall have world government, whether you like it or not, by conquest or consent. Zbigniew Brzezinski, who just died in 2017, and is a big-time Luciferian globalist who led, uh, advised presidents like LBJ and Reagan and Carter. He said this in both bushes. This regionalization is in keeping with the trilateral plan, which calls for a gradual convergence of East and West, ultimately leading to the goal of a one-world government, national sovereignty, is no longer a viable concept. Arthur Schlesinger, writing in, in the CFR's magazine, Foreign Affairs, which is their propaganda piece, their propaganda magazine, said, we are not going to achieve a new world order without paying for it in blood. And then Edward Bernay, the, the father of modern uh, publicity, modern propaganda uh, in America, Uh, This book was first published in 1928, and already back then he said a presidential candidate might be drafted in response to, quote, overwhelming popular demand, but it is well known that his name was first decided upon by a half dozen men sitting around a table in a hotel room. Sound familiar? He goes on to say we must have, uh, that there is an invisible government that are the true ruling power in our country. He said, there are invisible rulers who control the destinies of millions. Carol Quigley exposed the plan of this New World Order conspiracy in his book, Tragedy and Hope, when he said, the goal is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands. He said, freedom of choice will be controlled and every human being will be numbered from birth. Winston Churchill said, there's a world conspiracy that is steadily growing. He said, The creation of an authoritative world order is an ultimate aim toward which we must strive. Teddy Roosevelt said, behind the ostensible government sits enthroned an invisible government. And Satanist Manly P. Hall, who was a top degree uh, Freemason uh, and uh, Canadian born, he said, there are invisible powers behind the thrones of earth and men are but marionettes dancing while the invisible ones pull the strings. See, he talks to Satan. So he knows that there's a satanic conspiracy. Woodrow Wilson famously said, you've probably heard this quote, that uh, I talk to people all the time and, and they confide in me and he says, and I see they are afraid of something. They know there's a power somewhere so organized, subtle, watchful, interlocked, and complete, so pervasive that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. Former Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter said, the real rulers in Washington are invisible and exercise power from behind the scenes. Benjamin Desiree, Desiree, 19th century, the world is governed by very different personages than what is imagined today. David Rockefeller, in his uh, uh, memoirs, 
He said, some people think we're part of a secret cabal working to usher in a one-world government. Well, if that's what they think, then I stand guilty, and I'm proud of it. Henry Kissinger, who's still living. Uh, amazing how all of these satanic Luciferians live to typically 100 years old or older because they have access to the medicines that they need. But uh, he said, America would be outraged if UN troops entered Los Angeles to restore order, but tomorrow they're going to be grateful, especially if there was some outside threat, some invisible enemy that we needed to control order, right? He goes on to say, when something like that happens, that, that when they're presented with that scenario, individual rights will be willingly relinquished in favor of a world government. So, I, I diagram this all out in Spirit of the Antichrist and in other uh, materials and books that I have uh, produced. But, you know, basically at the top tier, there's probably six or eight families that are in charge of this conspiracy. The second tier, there's hundreds of thousands involved in business and finance and other secret societies like Skull and Bones and uh, Freemasonry and, 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 and so forth. And then at the bottom level, there's well over a million, probably millions of people, most of whom have no idea they're part of an invisible conspiracy. They have other agendas. Maybe it's money, maybe it's power, but they are working together, raging, just as David said they would, uh, plotting a vain thing to try to take over this world. And they don't, they're self-deceived. They don't know they're going to fail. So again, in this first stanza, David reminds us of the outcome. It's vain. You know, uh, he says, he, 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 it's a rhetorical question here. Why, it's almost like he's incredulous, why are these nations raging, trying to overcome God's anointed? Because they're going to fail. It's senseless. It's utterly senseless. And we know from reading God's word that the devil who deceived them, it will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are, the Antichrist. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if I were to ever be asked to translate the Greek New Testament in a paraphrastic form, here's how I would translate Revelation 20.10. Two words. God wins. That's it. That's the end of the story. God wins. God wins. So that's the Luciferian plot. But what about the second stanza? In the second stanza, we see the Lord's plan. <laughs> and this is very encouraging. So verses 4 through 6 are the second stanza in the Hebrew poetry. And David says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. I mean, doesn't that bring you comfort to know that the almighty, all-powerful creator of the universe is not the least bit scared of this satanic plan? He laughs. He holds them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath. We've been talking about the day of the Lord's wrath and our nine o'clock hour in the coming tribulation period according to revelation 6 to 18 he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure remember what we read in hebrews it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god and satan and his co-conspirators have vastly underestimated the power of our god and then david says yet i have set my king on my holy hill of zion the future earthly messianic reign of christ over the whole earth is part of god's eternal plan and it will not be thwarted period i mentioned at our july 4th uh service when i talked about this verse that uh the the phrase set or installed is the better translation of the hebrew i've installed my king is in the perfect tense in hebrew which just simply means it's a continuing effect uh, an ongoing effect of an action in the past in other words it's as good as done the action is 
as if it's completed, even though it hasn't happened in time yet, from God's perspective, it's a done deal. And so Christ has not taken the throne yet. The throne at the right hand of God in heaven is not the Messianic Davidic throne. It's not the one that will rule the world. It's a throne in waiting. He's there interceding on our behalf as believers in the church age. But someday he's going to come back and take that throne. And God says it's already done. He's already been installed. And Jesus talks about this, this himself in the Olivet Discourse. These are the words of Christ when he says, they, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all the holy angels with him, then, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. How Satan must have shuddered when Jesus said those words on Wednesday night before he was betrayed on Thursday night in the garden and crucified. Uh, I mean, he was confident. And, and Satan says, oh, no, you won't. And so he had him crucified, but Christ defeated the grave. And so that's the, the Lord's plan. And, and so we've seen the Luciferian plot and the Lord's plan. And then in the third stanza, we see the Lord's long-awaited prince. It involves the, you know, rejoicing that the, the prince of the power of the air is going to be defeated and in his place is installed the eternal prince of peace, Jesus Christ himself. I will declare, he says, the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And this decree points back to the unconditional promise of God in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic promise that Someone in the line of David, ultimately Jesus, would take the throne and rule forever. That's the, 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 the idea here. This, this notion of son is a messianic phrase. Uh, Jesus spoke of himself as the son of God. That was basically his way of claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Davidic king, the ultimate eternal Davidic king. He goes on, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Can you just imagine Satan hearing David as he sung these words under the inspiration of the Spirit? Remember, the New Testament tells us that Old Testament prophets wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Satan, who has his sights set on the throne and wants all the nations to bow down and worship him, hears God say through David, I will give you my anointed, my son, the eternal Son of God, the nations for your inheritance. And you will have the ends of the earth as your possession. Not Satan. Uh, you know, Satan, if you remember, was trying to offer Jesus this if he would only bow down and worship him. Remember in the wilderness, he said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But it wasn't the right time and it wasn't the right way. How ironic that when all is said and done, the long-awaited prince does take his rightful place on the throne. And it's going to be Satan who's bowing down and worshiping him when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. So, uh, so Jesus will definitely have all that, uh, all under his control. He said uh, the government, Isaiah the prophet said, the governments will be upon his shoulders. He will rule with a rod of iron. But it won't be him going through Satan. Satan uh, will be long gone. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them, dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Later in the book of Revelation, John quotes this messianic psalm when, at the return of Christ. When he says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, 
that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's who's going to rule. The long-awaited prince. The long-awaited prince. Uh, For unto us a child is born, Isaiah said, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he will be called the prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. So the first three stanzas, we've seen the Luciferian plot, the Lord's plan, the long-awaited prince. But finally, he closes out the last verse with the lasting promise. The lasting promise. He ends this messianic psalm by reminding us and reminding especially the Luciferian leaders that he's really talking to and about of God's lasting promise. What is that promise? That those who put their trust in Yahweh will be blessed. Those who do not will suffer the wrath of Almighty God. So he says, again, talking back to these kings that were enraged and conspiring together to overthrow the anointed one. He says, be wise, O kings. You might say, wise up, O fool. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Be instructed, Klaus Schwab and Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden. Be instructed. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And he says in verse 12, you should kiss the sun. Now this is fascinating because in the ancient Near East, including in the time of Israel, kissing was an act of submissive homage to a king. You see this all over the Old Testament. I have verses, but I'm not going to show them for the sake of time. But uh, we do see it. It's a custom that continues to this day. For example, the, the idea of kissing the Pope's ring. Here's a photo of a world leader, the president of Portugal, kissing the ring of Pope Francis during a state visit to the Vatican. And that shows your homage, your obedience, your uh, putting yourself under their authority. And what does David say? No, no. Kiss the son. That's who you should obey. That's who's ultimately going to take the throne. Lest he be angry and you uh, perish when his wrath is kindled. And then we see, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The long-awaited, I mean the lasting promise, the lasting promise. The testimony of Scripture from cover to cover is that those who trust in the Lord will be saved. It's a lasting promise. And that's why this growing global rebellion should not cause us to fear. In another psalm, David put it this way, The Lord redeems the soul of the servants, and none of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. See, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you don't have to worry about any of these things. You should be aware and be prepared and be thinking about it and not blindly go on and expect everything to be great. There's a fine line between faith and, uh, you know, presumption. And the Bible cautions us to be aware because we have a job to do. We don't want to just willingly get on the train to the death camp. We want to stand firm and make a difference. But at the same time, we should never fear because we know who ultimately wins in the end. And, you know, we see... After the resurrection, Jesus said to Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have seen and yet, who have not seen and yet still believe. 
And that's where we are. None of us walked and talked with Christ. That's where David was. He, ever, he was speaking prophetically of someone who wouldn't come for another thousand years. So like David, we're asked to place our faith in an unseen God to defeat an unseen enemy. And yet we see manifestations of Satan's work all around us. So there you have it. Psalm 2 outlined pretty simply the Luciferian plot, the Lord's plan, the long-awaited prince, and the lasting promise. So my question is this. Are you ready for that growing global rebellion? We don't know the Lord's timetable. We don't know how long He's going to tarry His coming. If He continues to delay, then we may have to walk through some pretty unsettling times in this global government. So step number one is to make sure you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And then beyond that, uh, once you've made peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, remember that the Lord's plans already defeated Lucifer's plot because of the death and resurrection of the long-awaited prince. And He's given us a lasting promise that all who place their faith in Him should be saved. So here's the takeaway. This is what I want you to remember this week. You know, this, things are changing so rapidly. Who knows? The, the tomorrow could bring all kinds of chaos. But never fear the enemy. Never underestimate the enemy, but never fear the enemy. Be aware and be prepared. And Wednesday night at our Bible study, in part five of What in the World is Going On, I'm planning to dedicate the entire evening to preparedness tips, basically talking about practical things that we can do that we should think about many of which you may not have even thought about that we should 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 give some thought to in light of what may be coming down the pike and then finally trust in the lord no matter what lies ahead i don't know what psalm i'm going to look at next week but i'm thinking about psalm 20 which is a great psalm of trust and uh, the theme of hebrews that we just finished studying is trust the theme of going through uh, all of the current events and stuff is trust so maybe it would be good to to be reminded of how important it is to trust the Lord. Would you bow with me as we close? Father, again, I thank you for just uh, this simple yet so rich psalm. Easy to outline, easy to understand, nothing particularly profound, but yet such a great reminder of who the enemy is, what his plan is, who wins in the end, and what a great God we serve. We thank you for uh, just loving us and for... Uh, providing the way out of this uh, predicament spiritually through your son and it's in his precious name that we pray amen let's stand together well since he talked about the perfect hebrew tense we get to sing in that tense